Uh, hi, this is Joe. Baden. I can't answer the phone right now. Please leave a message and I'll get back to you as soon as you're not BB. You've got some nerve calling me up here. Think I don't remember how you stabbed me and Obama in the back? Huh? You jackass. הוא שואל אם אני יכול להלוות לו את הג'קט, הוא חולה על הסטייל שלי, יש ג'וווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווו
that he wanted to say. I think that what he wanted to do is he wanted to establish himself firmly as the man setting the agenda in the election. It doesn't matter what the agenda is as long as he's the one setting it. And here we are. Three days later, we're still we're talking, all talking about, about him. That's, that's always been his strategy, right? Whether it's good news or bad news, just dominate or, or no the news. headlines. Or no news. No news. As long just as it's him. Just dominate the headlines. As long as it's him. And one thing that's very clear from this interview, truth is, is irrelevant. Haaretz counted eight lies. Even uh, though he told Yonit Levy, go and fact check when she yeah, tried to exactly. ask him challenging the, questions. The market counted 21 lies and spins and other news organizations had their own numbers. But the truth is, it's simply irrelevant Never has, I think, in Israeli politics been a lie so cheap, so easy to tell. And simply there's no expectation anymore of Netanyahu to tell the truth. (laughs) One last point about this interview is that what everybody will remember from this interview is when Yonit Levy asked him about the failings of his government overhandling uh, the pandemic. It was, he had to, na 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 Explain what that means. It was a joke. It worked well. Everyone's talking about it. However, it does expose his biggest weakness in this campaign is that he doesn't really have, beyond saying we brought vaccinations, he hasn't got a good answer to all the failings of his government over the past 12 months of the pandemic. And he's aware. That's why he's using a sort of jokey parody of a parody to deflect. Okay, now that we've parsed him from every which way, let's move beyond Netanyahu, if one can say so. Uh, We're about four and a half weeks now ahead of the elections. And here's where the dynamics of the race are going in terms of the polls. Yair Lapid's Yeshatid has definitely solidified its position in the second place, but it's still trailing double digits behind Netanyahu's Likud. Gidon Saar's new hope, the great new hope of many in the anti-Netanyahu coalition for this election, is in third place. He's very stable and stuck at 13 seats. Naftali Bennett's party, Yamina, which was riding very high over the summer, even crossing the 20-seat threshold at a certain point, has declined steadily and is leveled off at an average of 11 seats in the last uh, two weeks' worth of polling. Angela, you and I had an maybe epic disagreement about what all this actually means. So give it your best shot. Tell us what you think it means. Hardly epic, but I think that that the downward trend of Ben has been much more dramatic than that. And he was... into, Into early December, he was still in the 20s. So he's lost half... That is making a skeptical face. Because it's but, not true. But it happens to be true. He's lost <laughs> By late December. By the time the elections were called, he was already well below 20. Late in, December. I said early December. But when the elections were called is when it matters. No, it doesn't. What matters is the polls over the last year because this has been an election year. We haven't basically been out of an election atmosphere. And the moment Bennett was not part of the coalition, which was formed in May, he was on an election footing. And he was doing well in the polls. He was 20-plus. And he stayed for six months from May to December in the 20-plus region. Now, Dahlia's right. The election was called. And then New Hope, Gidon Sauer's new party came in and obviously cut a major chunk out of Bennett's support. But it still is a huge and very rapid descent from 20-plus to about 10 or 11 now in the polls. So Bennett has lost half of his support in two months. That's a staggering uh, descent, and it also means that Bennett's votes, are, as we know in from past elections, are always soft. They can be chipped away, usually by Benjamin Netanyahu, now by Gideon Sao. And why is this important going in? Because, A, Bennett has... He still talks about the fact that he should be the next prime minister, but... Which has become a running joke of the country. Which is a running joke, and even his own senior party members don't really talk about it anymore. They talk about, we should be running the country, but they don't say Bennett should be prime minister, most of them, anymore. 
but he's now positioning himself to be the kingmaker because in most of the polls, he has a chance to choose either Netanyahu or Lapid Osar as leading the next government. And we so should clarify that he's being coy about committing to going into or coy. not going into. He's the only one. Everybody else is taking. He's aside the only party which, which, is keep, which is keeping all their options open, and therefore we can we have to count Bennett as a potential part of the Netanyahu bloc. And this is the next reason why I think this is very important, because. As we've said many times, and you've stressed it, there's very, very little move between the different blocks. But if we can now classify Bennett as potentially being part of the Netanyahu bloc, and Gidon Sao, to take him at face value, says he will never sit with Netanyahu again. So Sao is the anti-Netanyahu bloc. The movement, or the only significant movement, of even a seat or two between the blocks is from Yamina to Sao's New Hope, or vice versa. And if two seats move either way, that could change their entire picture. Netanyahu could have a majority or could have no chance of a majority, which is why I think the next few weeks, what happens to the Amina voters could decide the election. It is important, no question. It's just that, uh, as you point out, we really do see very little motion across those blocks of the pro or anti-Netanyahu parties. And in fact, in most polls, as we've seen, the, the, the breakdown one way or the other is basically, you know, 58, 61, one way or the other in the different polls. And so very little movement. I think that if Bennett continues to go down, then of course his power diminishes as kingmaker. Although Avigdor Lieberman with five seats managed to touch off this whole mess. So let's talk about the other main development that happened this week, which has become a kind of election ritual, which is that the parties try to get each other banned. That's right. Parties have the right to complain to the Central Election Committee based on Clause 7A of the Basic Law of the Knesset, stipulating that candidates or parties in Israel cannot stand for office if they deny the existence of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state, incite to racism or support armed struggle or terrorism against the state of Israel. That's how Mayor Kahana got the boot in 1988. But on Wednesday, his successors, the Jewish Power Party, tried to have number seven on the labor list of candidates, Ibtisam Marana, banned for comments she wrote on a Facebook post about eight years ago, because, you know, pots love to call kettles black. It tried to get the joint list banned, too. The Central Election Committee rejected the petition against the joint list, but it did rule against Marana of labor. Anshul, why is this significant, or is it just not that significant, maybe a little bit interesting? Which is it? Well, it's like you said at the beginning, it's a ritual. Elections are also partly about rituals, and one of the rituals of an Israeli election since, as you mentioned, Rabbi America had in 1988, is the disqualifying of the lists or of the candidates. We have to quickly note that the Central Election Commission has basically three parts to it. There is the respectable, functional part, which are hundreds of civil servants who spend their time also when there's not an official election campaign, preparing for the next election, huge logistical uh, operations, especially this year because of COVID-19. They are the main functional and permanent part. And I of like the them because they're the nerdy version and they make everything very transparent. Anybody who goes on the Central Election Committee website can get a great deal of information about the elections. I, I agree. It's extremely well run. And actually, this is also one of the reasons if you obviously some people don't don't agree with the rankings. But one of the reasons why Israel gets actually quite high rankings in various democracy indexes, partly through transparency of the electoral system and this thanks to these anonymous men and women in the Central Election Commission. And just to get really nerdy for a second, Israel does get high rankings pretty consistently on the, on the electoral democracy yes, part. It's exactly. the other parts of democracy uh, where uh, there where, is where erosion. Exactly. Then there is 
the head of the Central Electric Commission, which is a Supreme Court judge who makes some of the more important decisions, especially the ones that have to be made very quickly because things are happening in a campaign and certain parts of some propaganda issues have to be either disqualified or authorized or various irregularities on election day. So that's why there's a Supreme Court judge who can rule very quickly. And then there's the third part, which is called in Hebrew the Milia named after the Knesset or the plenum, where the representatives of the party sit, and that's the political part, because the only politicians are sitting in, of the commission, and they're the ones who disqualify their future uh, colleagues in the Knesset. So this is probably just a ritual because we can say almost for certain that the Supreme Court will reinstate Ibti Samarwana on uh, Sunday or Monday when they rule on this case based on previous uh, rulings. Sometimes they'll upheld us this qualification. Most people think that in this case they won't. Two things to note. First of all, Ibti Samarana is a lightning rod for various racists and other uh, rabble-rousing politicians to make, Isn't to try and make a point. Isn't that basically the case of any Arab candidate? I was about to say, well. she is the stand-in for previous uh, candidates, especially Hanin Zouabi, an Arab woman who has strident views of her own in our political environment, in our society, certainly a lightning rod, and she's being used. But there have also been people saying this helps Labour in a way, because there are other candidates in Labour who are less Labour-like and much more radical uh, than Labour's traditional centrist views. And it's useful for them that there's an Arab woman who's taking all the fire for them. And the other thing interesting that happened, and we both immediately flagged this up yesterday when it happens, that Likud was barely missing in action where were they totally they were absent and they not only did not show up for the marana vote they also didn't show up for a vote on joint list and ram right i mean i think what's interesting about this year's ritual uh of the attempt to ban parties or candidates is that really it's the extreme jewish power party that's doing all the work nobody else seems to be participating in the little circus this time which says to me that the mainstream parties don't take the accusations very seriously but let's talk about the real reason why the likud people didn't show up for the vote because they covet the arab vote and they don't want to upset arab voters and they're not alone this week we saw everybody kind of on a full-out campaign to try to get Arab votes. Yeshatid, New Hope, Meretz started a particular new campaign for the Arab vote. And even the tiny economy party run by Professor Yawon Zalicha, which is not even crossing the threshold, they all went to Arab communities to try to rally, basically begging for their votes. So we've talked about the Arab constituencies. We've talked about ultra-Orthodox Haredim on this show. We've talked about lefties. Who's left? Now, there's one community that used to be the apple of every candidate's eye. In the 1990s and 2000s, this group was the kingmaker constituency. Everybody wanted to know where, quote-unquote, the Russian vote was going. Now, the main party representing that group today, Avigdor Lieberman's Israel is our home, Israel Bitenu, is basically stuck at seven seats, kind of fixed in stone in the surveys, yet there are still roughly uh, half a million people of voting age who were born in the former Soviet Union, that calculates to up to 13 seats. Who are they and where are their votes? To answer that, we're very happy to introduce Ksenia Svetlova, who immigrated to Israel from the former Soviet Union as a teen. She's a journalist and an expert in Middle East affairs, a senior research fellow at the Institute for Policy and Strategy at the Interdisciplinary Center in Herzliya. 
She is also a senior policy fellow at the Mitvim Institute for Regional Foreign Policy. She recently published a very cool book, you should all read it, called Reporting the Middle East on High Heels, about her years of reporting the Middle East. And what's important for us today is that Ksenia also served as a member of the 20th Knesset for the Zionist Union Coalition, led by the Labor Party. She sat on a number of Knesset committees at the time, so she knows the system from within. Ksenia, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello, Dalia, and hello, Anshan. Can you try to make order out of this idea that there is a constituency? Is there a Russian camp in Israel these days, or is it just a sort of fragmented, generalized reflection of Israeli society? Well, Dalia, you know, is if there is something that is eternal, you know, capital Jerusalem and Welling Wall and all of that, it's this uh, conflict about the what is actually the Russian community. Is it a community at all? Is there a constituency, just like you said? Or is there just, you know, the large number of people who immigrated from the same place, who have the same origin, but uh, other than that, they have nothing in common. It's not black and white, it's complicated. Where there are some patterns that actually make, um, you know, this group, uh, maybe not consolidated, but still, you know, a group that you can uh, have specific uh, characteristics, certainly in the 90s and the 2000s, there were voting patterns that you can talk about. But as the time goes by, and as the Russian Israelis become more and more Israelis, and this is, you know, their point is eventually to become part of this country, not to stay the secluded group forever. I think that it will be more and more difficult for the various political parties to get the, you know, the psychic of this group. What is it all about? And how this group can be tempted into voting for somebody that they didn't vote before, for example. Is there anything that characterizes this group such as they are? Let's just say the people who were born in the former Soviet Union now live here. Is there anything that characterizes them in terms of attitudes, ideology, general positions? I would say that, yes, the majority uh, believes that Israel should be a secular state. I think it's basic that the parties, uh, such as uh, Avigdor Lieberman's uh, Israel Beteno, uh, such as Yeshatit of Yair Lapid, uh, the Zionist Union, you know, that uh, used to be once a Zionist Union, and now it's a bunch of disintegrated uh, entities uh, like uh, Labour and uh, Blue and White and all of that. So they have more opportunity for success than the religious parties. The Russians tend to vote for the center, center right and right, not to the left. Okay, so this is something, again, you can talk about it as a pattern, as a characteristic that uh, uh, more or less you, you can put the majority of this group into this uh, definition. So, uh, you know, we've seen in in this election and in p- previous campaigns that Likud, Yamina, New Hope, Yeshatid, they all have Russian-speaking candidates in quite prominent uh, spots on their candidates' lists, and we don't see that happening in Labour or, or with Merit. And do you think that they're making a mistake if Labour and Merit were to somehow put more prominent uh, candidates from the Russian-speaking community on their list that would help them uh, attract more voters from the community or it would be a waste of time basically because they wouldn't come anyway well first of all i do believe that uh, in every party there should be uh, you know uh, the representatives of the so-called russian community although many of them as you know actually come from ukraine belarus moldova and the uh, caucasus uh, and they do not identify themselves as russians the israeli identify them as russians but this is for another uh, podcast perhaps you know they comprise uh, what about uh, one-sixth uh, of the Jewish population here in Israel, so naturally they should be everywhere. But uh, the Russian voters want more than a Russian name and a face in the party list. They want this party also to work for them. They want this party to commit it, to be committed, you know, to their grievances, to their, you know, problems, and uh, basically to fight for them in the Knesset. 
if, for example, uh, Merits uh, will put uh, some Russian name on the list, but after that, you know, the, the voters, uh, the constituency will see that nothing has been, you know, actually done to provide this kind of glue between candidate, uh, between the Knesset member, and between the community, uh, so nothing will happen, you know. So I can tell you that, for example, in the Zionist Union, again, again, according to the pollsters, we do not know the exact numbers. Uh, but from what I uh, what I know, uh, roughly two two and a half uh, mandates came uh, to the Zionist Union in 2015. Uh, but you know, there were a few components there. It was not only my presence, you know, because I'm a you know a familiar name, you know, in the you know Russian houses. I worked for many years in uh, Channel Nine, so everybody knows who I am. I. They do not necessarily like me, but they know who am I. Uh, so there's there's a recognition factor, but there is uh, also this feeling that they are voting for uh, a central party that is a contender to become a ruling party uh, in Israel. They do not want to be stuck forever in the opposition, which is something that uh, Viktor Lieberman fears a lot, that if he will be stuck for a long time in the opposition, he will eventually lose some of its support in the Russian street because they expect from him and they are actually used him to be in the government to have his ministers in the government uh and promoting a policy that uh can serve you know the russian community i think it's a combination of things uh and the voters are no longer naive they speak hebrew they understand well the israeli realities much better than they used to in 1992 when they were bused uh to the you know polling stations and before that to the kibbutzim uh, pools and the uh, basically promised that if they would vote to, for labor that they will have their secure job places you know this is i remember it well i was 15 years old i didn't vote but my mother did and i remember very well this uh, uh situation they're not longer there you know, we, we're used to thinking of avido lieberman as the most prominent politician to have come from this broad community and i said i said russian speaking obviously it's not just Russia, it's lots of countries. but And even Russian speaking at this point is problematic because so many speak Hebrew. So, but for, for want of a, be, of a better word, we'll, we'll, we'll stick to that. But actually, the most prominent of the politicians that have come from this community isn't Lieberman, it's Yuli Edelstein. And the last time Likud had a, a primaries in early 2019, he came top of the list after Benjamin Netanyahu. He's the most popular uh, Likudnik in the Likud party, which is the only party which does a big primaries with over 100,000 members. So, mm-hmm. is Yuli Edelstein the first politician to sort of cross over into the mainstream? Is he, is he popular also with the community, not just among Likudniks? What, what do you think is the secret of his success? Well, first of all, I think that there are many things that are appealing to the Likud voters in Yuli Edelstein. Uh, it's, of course, you know, his uh, past as a prisoner of Zion and uh, his uh, dramatic story, uh, you know, and the Aliyah to Israel and all of that. Also, you know, he has this reputation of uh, still having something of the old Likud. So I think that uh, uh, his support is strong, but not because of him being Russian, despite of him being Russian. He's not actually being identified as Russian because he's a keeper-wearing person, he's observing, he's uh, pro-settlements. If you will ask a person in Ashdod, for example, or in Netanya, a Russian-speaking person in Israel, Russian-Israeli in Israel, if you will ask them what do they think about Yuli Edelstein and how he used his power to defend the community, to fight for community needs, they will tell you probably that they are very disappointed because the majority of Russian speakers, even if they are now much more accustomed to Israeli traditions, they are more open to the Israeli traditions, but much of them are staunch supporters of the secular state in Israel and separation between state and religion. This is the opposite of uh, what uh, Yulia Edelstein and Zayf Elkin represent. They're, and that's why Likud also cannot increase significantly 
their influence uh, in uh, the so-called Russian street because uh, you know what they can uh, offer you know they can offer uh, their alliance with the Haredi parties their internal allies that necessarily will come at the expense uh, how it's at least this is how it's perceived uh, by the you know Russian speaking Israelis so you're basically saying that Yuli Edelstein had to relinquish part of his identity as a as a Russian Israeli to to become popular with Likudniks you know, um, actually, it's very interesting because there is always this question uh, when somebody who is originated from, you know, the USSR and he speaks Russian, has Russian name, is he automatically expected just to focus on the community issues and to immediately become the defender of the, you know, so-called Russian affairs uh, in his party and the Knesset in general? Uh, well, I can tell you that, you know, I, I came from the background of... Uh, uh, Middle Eastern studies, uh, journalism, security, you know, uh, this is all that was something that was my world. Uh, but when I, you know, was in Israel, it was immediately clear that, of course, I will be dealing with, uh, you know, the issues that are close to my community that are important. But I also watched very closely with great interest the politicians such as Edule Edelstein that basically, you know, they separated themselves from their Russian uh, identity and they focused on the all Israeli politics as you know, they were, you know, born in Israel or, you know, coming from any other origins. So let's talk now about the one who does at least have a stable core of Russian speaking. Even that is not totally accurate, but people born in the former Soviet Union, that's Avigdor Lieberman. It's interesting because except for one election in 2009, when he really got people beyond that sector, 15 seats, but he's been back down to five, six or seven seats. He's at, you know, again, very solid base in the polls of seven seats. So I guess my question is, is he trying to break out of that? Is he trying to go beyond the sector? And if he has kind of accepted that his support really will come from former Soviet immigrants, explain to us why part of his campaign has turned into an anti-vax campaign. That is the strangest yeah. development, I think, but it's having real impact on the community because we know that among many of the uh, uh, former Soviet immigrants, there is a high rate of non-vaccination. So how are those things connected? Well, uh, I think that uh, Viktor Lieberman, um, he is dreaming uh, of breaking this glass ceiling that uh, he created for himself because he left Likud in uh, 90, what, 98, 99, and he established uh, the Israel Beteno. I heard from one of the advisors that once worked with him, I don't know how reliable it is, but he said to, that he claims that he, Avigdor said to him that, listen, I would never ever, you know, will be uh, allowed to be that successful in Likud. I have to start my own party. Okay, so uh, he established his own party. It was clearly from the beginning, uh, you know, party of the Russian speakers. And with time, I think he tried to involve different figures uh, from the Israeli public sphere, even more so in the, you know, recent years. So look at who he is, uh, you know, occupying the first few seats in the list. Yes, you have El Adidar, you have Odet Forer, you have, you know, the Druze representative, uh, Ahmed Amar, of course. Uh, so uh, you do have a mixed list. So, you know, if Meretz is talking about Arab Jewish list, so uh, Israel Betena, we can talk about native-born Israelis, you know, and uh, the Russian-speaking Israelis. Of course, he would like to break the ceiling and to bring more support from the mainstream, um, you know, Israeli public uh, sector and to enjoy more uh, legitimacy there. But it's uh, for, you know, many reasons, it's not working. Uh, he is still, you know, driving his uh, most of his uh, uh, force, most of his supporters. They are still coming from the, you know, Russian-speaking sector. And and I uh, and I would add to that 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 it's 
mainly older uh, people from the Russian-speaking sector. The younger people well, tend to vote otherwise. And there is this, this block, and correct me if I'm wrong, of recently arrived but elderly Russian-speaking, from the, they come from Ukraine and other places, and Belarus and other places as well, of around five, 6,000 who arrive every year. And their point of contact with the Israeli authorities, the government, social services, is very often... Uh, an employee of the Native Agency, which is a government agency, but Lieberman and Yisrael Beteno have a lot of people working in that agency, and that sort of establishes a contact with them before the election. Is that something you're aware of? Well, you know, uh, Native is uh, important, but it's a small agency. I would rather say that the contact that the Olim have with the representative of the party in the municipal level, yeah. this mm -hmm. is, I think, the that crucial well, factor. Yeah. Because, you know, this is the vice mayors and this is the, also the mayors now of the cities. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, ev almost everybody who is responsible for the Aliyah department in the municipalities, majority are coming from Israel, uh, rose, uh, and actually this party was able to build its base of support, which is steady because of this involvement uh, with the daily life, with the municipalities. Okay, and how did the anti-vaccination uh, part of it come into this? Right. Okay. So, you know, the Corona, it's the hottest topic uh, for us today. It's not the security, not the Palestinians, not the settlements, even not the economy. Okay. Of course, economy comes second. But first, it's the health, of course. So what, what will become of us? You know, will we be saved, you know, with the help of the vaccine? Or is vaccine is dangerous for us and it's just a trick uh, to make some kind of a mass experiment, you know, on our bodies? Uh, I see the, you know, volume of uh, the anti-vax stock in the Russian language uh, Israeli groups on Facebook, WhatsApp, uh, some of them, and Telegram. And I cannot just, you know, not mention that along with the influence of the Russian state media, uh, such as the, you know, the first channel of Russia, when, and they have all kind of, you know, health-related uh, programs there when some of the people actually deny corona, you know, so it's like amazing. Uh, the influence of the Russian uh, networks, uh, Vkontakte uh, and others, uh, it's, you know, along with this, there is also this understanding that there is a party, it's the Israel Beteno party, and at least part of the members of this party, they are, uh, you know, openly, like Elia Vidar, like Yulia Molinovska, they are talking about the danger, you know, that in vaccines, Elia Vidar says, we do not know anything about this vaccine. And, I, and, and, even, Lieber, and even Lieberman, who made a point that he has been vaccinated, said, well, we don't know yet if the vaccine works, but I'm, but I'm vaccinated. Yeah, yeah. And they think that's going yes, to get them votes. but... Uh, you know, but uh, he's uh, very, you know, close to, to members of Knesset that are close to him, continue to disseminate this uh, doubts, doubts, you know, about, Be, you know. But, but why? Because they think it's going to get them votes of those Russian-speaking uh, recent immigrants who say, ah, he yes. understands us? Yes, I, I think, I think that uh, this is exactly what they're thinking. And I think that also that this assumption might be right. I do not know what will happen until the elections uh, in terms of, you know, percentage of uh, people who will, you know, get the vaccine, both doses of it. But uh, I can tell you that for now, I am seeing plenty of Facebook posts where people are writing. So uh, if Lieberman's party is the only one that defends our freedom of choice, uh, our personal freedom, our rights not to get vaccinated, then we will vote for him despite uh, that, you know, we were disappointed in his policies when he was in the government a few years ago. So it sounds okay, like he's so really trying people, to hang on to those think, seats. Yes. Suddenly, you know, the Russian speakers uh, were never so preoccupied with their personal rights and civil rights as they are today. You know, it's incredible to see this. And this talk, uh, it's, uh, you know, I guess it's derived also from the, uh, you know, Russian, official Russian media, 
uh, and uh, the social networks in Russian language, and also by this very bizarre support of the uh, anti-vax by some of the members of Israel Beitev. They do not go for the, you know, the hard line, do not, you know, get the vaccine, so because it will be too risky and can compromise them in the general public. But uh, they are playing, they're flirting with this issue. Great. So you've given us m- much more to worry about. Uh, Ksenia Svetlova, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ksenia. Thank you. Thank you for having me. MVD. So, yes, our interview with Ksenia reminded me of when the Russian parties, we're going to call them Whatever they're called. First competed in the elections in the late 1990s. And the first Russian party was Israel Balia which literally translates as Israel in ascendant. But it's a nice wordplay on Aliyah, Jewish immigration to Israel. Yisrael Baliyah was founded and led by the most famous Russian Israeli of all, former prisoner of the Gulag, Natan Sharansky. I remember that over 20 years ago when Yisrael Baliyah in 1996 and then Yisrael Beitenu in 1999 first ran and their campaign broadcasts and slogans and jingles were in Russian, that it was a bit of a shock in wider Israeli society at these new Israelis who weren't even trying to campaign in Hebrew and were speaking to their own constituency in Russian and making these rather brazen demands. Yisrael Balia's jingle, which we heard just now in the outtake, didn't have any music, though I think there may have been a rap version. Dalia, do you remember that? I think it was just recorded in a club. But it was both catchy in Russian and it caught on with many non-Russian-speaking Israelis as well. MVD pad shas control, yet MVD pad nash control. And then you have to jump around like in a mob in the club, okay, and shouting the slogan, which I'm means a bit too old for that. The Interior Ministry under shas control, yet no, the Interior Ministry under our control. And this was a very loaded slogan because in the former Soviet Union and in today's Russia as well, MVD, MVD. The Ministry for Internal Affairs was one of the most powerful organs of the state with control over both the police and the secret police, the KGB. Israel's Interior Ministry has different responsibilities, but it's a powerful institution as well, controlling, among other things, all matters pertaining to citizenship. And since many of the new immigrants were eligible for Israeli citizenship under the law of return, but in many cases not considered Jewish by the Interior Ministry, which was then, us now, controlled by Shas, it was seen as a matter of pride to replace them and put a Russian Israeli in charge. Let's just say, not just a matter of pride, but not being recognized as Jewish by the Interior Ministry had serious ramifications over many areas of family law. Agreed, agreed. And it worked. Israel Balia won in that election six seats and joined El Barak's coalition. Sharansky was appointed Interior Minister. But his victory was short-lived. Sharansky, a genius in many ways, was a weak politician who failed to make much headway against the ministry's officials. And less than a year later, he resigned in protest over Barak's negotiations with Yasser Arafat at Camp David. The next year, when El Barak lost the election to Ariel Sharon, Sharansky went back into government as housing minister. And the interior minister went back to Shas, which has held it for 11 of the last 20 years. In 2003, after winning only two seats in that year's election, Sharansky merged Yisrael Baliyah with Likud and left the Russian vote to Lieberman who's still around after all these years. And that's the story of a successful, even winning jingle that still failed to deliver on its promise. Jingles don't solve all our problems, but they are a lot of fun.
That wraps up our eighth election overdose episode, uh, which you can hear on Haaretz.com, your destination for all fine podcast election coverage and much more. Or you can listen to us on the podcast provider of your choice. I'd like to thank our special guest this week again, Ksenia Svetlova, our producer, Yonatan Manovich, and my co-host, Angel Pfeffer. And most of all, you, the listener. You can follow Angel and me on Twitter, where we will try to respond to at least some of your feedback and questions, and we're going to combine them all in the next episode. In the meantime, keep listening to us and keep following the Israeli elections. Have a great weekend, wherever you are. Shabbat shalom from Haaretz in Tel Aviv.